0: So for my cover slide this morning, I thought some of you might be tired of all this hot weather. So I'd put something refreshing on the wall to begin with. Seth tells me we've been having a little problem with the system. We'll have a lot of passages this morning. I don't take time in my lessons typically to uh, let you turn to things, so hopefully my The scriptures that I use will pop up on the wall for you to to read as I I go through them. Otherwise, the lesson may be an hour and a half long. I told Seth that, and he said, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. (laughs) So in the auditorium class, we've been working through a study that Ryan has called, Why Do We? The class is a study of the reasons we worship as we do. Most of us have studied these topics over the years, and we've made our personal decision that what we do in worship is scriptural. But for some of us, maybe that decision has been made for us. Our parents have always brought us here. Or perhaps we've always done it this way, so we're comfortable with it, but we couldn't really explain why we do these things. There's an old saying, and I'm hesitant to use old sayings because... There's generations that have never heard old sayings. We're preaching to the choir. It means that we're preaching to people that already agree with the things that are being taught. But I've been really encouraged how many additional scriptural good reasons for what we do that I've I've picked up in these classes. uh, This morning's uh, class especially, I think, brought that to mind. Though we may have been personally convinced on an issue by maybe one passage or example, but it's good to be aware of other texts that might be more convincing to others that we might talk to. So as we consider these questions of why we do in worship what we do, we immediately look to the Bible, what the Bible says, but many of our neighbors don't give Scripture the same importance that we do. All churches claim to look to the Bible, but the churches of Christ apply Scripture as we see it was applied in the first century church. In Ryan's first class of this study, we looked at why we don't use instruments in our worship. I think when most of our neighbors think about the church of Christ, that's the big difference. It's because it's, it's obvious. For myself, the most convincing argument is that the Christian church didn't use instruments for many hundreds of years. General use of instruments in Christian churches is only very recent, only gaining general acceptance in the last maybe 250 years or so. And this cinches this it for me. This is important to me, but most people don't put the same importance on what the first century church did. Following the example of the first century church is so foundational to us that I think we might fail to realize that our neighbors have never considered the importance of worshiping as the churches of the New Testament worshiped. The very term first century church, is kind of a code word, it has special meaning to us but many people don't know what this describes or why it's important. So let's, this morning, let's begin by defining what we mean by first century church, and then we'll look at why it's important to an understanding of God's will. We live in the 21st century. Our dating system begins with the birth of Christ, so the first century begins when Jesus walked the earth. It's in the first century that Jesus came to the earth and gave his teachings. He was here. Christ chose his apostles and he groomed them to fill a special role in leading the church in the first century. The church began in Acts 2 in that first century. The new covenant replaced the Old Testament in the first century. And important for our study this morning, it was in that first century that the apostles directed that new Christian church. The fact that the apostles lived and directed the church in the first century is significant. In a few minutes, we're going to be looking at just a few examples of how uninspired men have historically made a mess of God's design. But the apostles were inspired. Jesus chose them, he taught them, he gave them special knowledge so that they could mold his new church into what Christ wanted it to be. In the Gospel of John, beginning in the 13th chapter, Jesus began telling the 12 apostles that he would soon be leaving the world and returning to the Father. In the following chapters, Jesus promised that he would send a helper a comforter, after he left them. This comforter was the Holy Spirit that came on the apostles in Acts chapter 2. We read about that in Acts 2, dropping down to uh, highlighted verse 4 there. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking of those apostles, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Jesus had told the apostles that the Holy Spirit would remind them of the things they had learned from him. The Holy Spirit would teach them Jesus' will on things that they had not yet understood. John 16, verse 12, especially there, is interesting to me. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you to all truth. I think about perhaps when one of us is going to the doctor, we like to take someone else along to listen to what the doctor is is telling us, uh, to bring those things to our remembrance later. Um, And we know that the apostles didn't really understand that Jesus had to die. They really didn't understand many things. But the Holy Spirit, after the Spirit came upon them fully, uh, brought these things to their understanding. With the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Jesus also ap- promised the apostles that they would receive whatever they asked of the Father. This gave them power to perform miracles and to prove that they were led, approved by God. In Matthew 16, a passage we looked at earlier this morning, Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said that he would give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Note that in verse 20, in that same passage, the apostles were there. This wasn't just Peter. The apostles were there. And they shared in receiving this gift. They shared in receiving this mission of having the keys to the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 16, 15, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. They had the power to bind and to loose. They were going to institute, to direct, to run, to set up. The church that they were opening the doors to. In Matthew 18, Jesus states that the apostles, led by the Holy Spirit, were given authority to give direction to the church. All faithful Christians share in the duties and the blessings of Christ, but the apostles were unique in their mission, they were unique in their authority over the church in that first century. The apostles were hand-chosen by Jesus. They lived with him. They learned from him. They witnessed him for three years. And then they were given miraculous knowledge, power, and access to the Father's power for their role in guiding the church. As we look for an explanation, as we look for an explanation of how we should live and worship as Christians, we copy the examples that we see in the New Testament churches because they were led, directed by the apostles during the years of the apostles' lives. If we do the same thing that we see done and approved in the first century church, the church described in the New Testament, then we can know that our worship and our Christianity is also approved by God. Well, some would say that Yes, the apostles were miraculously led by the Holy Spirit, but it seems like good religious men could use the Scriptures to continue to direct the church of God. And that is God's intent. God's intent that men will faithfully follow His instruction given in Scripture in leading others to Him. In Matthew 23... Jesus told the crowds, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you. And in 2 Timothy, Paul told the preacher, Timothy, And what you have heard from me, Paul, an apostle, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, yes, it's God's intention that good, sincere religious people still need to share God's instruction. But so often, mankind has gone beyond the scriptures and has tried to improve on the doctrines that were taught by the apostles. So, let's consider the track record briefly how uninspired man has done in applying God's will. In the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, there was a cycle of good leaders and bad. This led to God's people, God's nation, pleasing him at times and being destroyed at other times. Over the centuries, I think we would agree that overall, there was more failure than success in God's people faithfully doing his will. In the New Testament, even in the first century, there were problems among God's people. But we read in Scripture how the apostles responded and corrected those errors. In the years following the death of the apostles, God's people again started that downward spiral. In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul was meeting with the Ephesian elders. And he warned them that problems would arise from within the church within the elderships. In Acts 20, picking up in in verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. This is exactly what we see in history. Very soon after the first century, after the passing of the apostles, the elders of the great cities competed for a position of preeminence over one another. And we know that Jesus had expressly told his apostles not to seek preeminence over one another. When the apostles had asked Jesus, Who would be the greatest among the apostles? Jesus corrected them, told them that was a wrong approach. They were not to seek preeminence over one another, to seek who would be the greatest among the apostles. When the bishop of Rome eventually rose to power and claimed authority over the entire Christian church, he and all popes claimed that their authority was inherited from the apostle Peter. But there's nothing in God's word that indicates that Peter ever held a unique position over the other apostles. And while Scripture doesn't give strict quali- does give strict qualifications for elders and deacons, there are no qualifications given. There's no mention of a worldwide elder. Surely God would have given instructions, or at least mentioned in Scripture, such an important office that was to continue through the ages. The office of Pope, or Vicar of Christ is merely what we have always seen in history men competing to gain power and position over others ultimately those who claimed authority over the church also assumed the right to change or perhaps improve on god's instruction additional doctrine was imposed and instruction was given that god instruction that god had given excuse me was ignored Under the leadership of uninspired men, the church competed for political and economic power through the ages. Church became a huge business. The business of the Christian church became much greater than that of the money changers and the sellers in the temple that Jesus had condemned. Led by uninspired men, we had inquisitions, where people were killed that didn't convert to Christianity. Under uninspired men, we had the sale of indulgences, essentially where your sins would be overlooked if enough money was given to the church. And this money wasn't used to help the needy. The sale of indulgences was primarily used to build the empire of the Roman church and to build the great cathedrals of Europe. Corruption in the church led by men became so blatant that in the 1500s, men like Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest himself, tried to reform the church to return it to biblical concepts. When later reformers translated the Bible into languages of the common man and encouraged people to read the Bible of God for themselves, many of them were persecuted and some were killed by the church. Under the oversight of uninspired men, rather than encourage people to search the scriptures daily, people were forbidden from reading the Bible for themselves. Making Bibles and making Bibles available became a capital offense by the church. There were surely individuals during these years who faithfully served God as the corporate church grew farther from God's simple plan. And finally, in the 1700s, a movement began to return to the teachings of the apostles rather than accept the teachings that man had developed over the centuries. These Christian reformers sought to copy the teachings and examples of the church of the first century, the church that had been led by the inspired apostles. There was a return to searching the Bible and rejecting the creeds that had been written by men, There was a desire to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. There was a desire to be called simply Christians. This movement to restore the simplicity of the original Church of Christ spread quickly, especially in this country, because this country was largely free of the political power and influence of the great churches of Europe. But in the hundreds of years since those 1700s, the Restoration Movement as as we know it, many Christians returned to those ideas of adding to, improving on the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. When Jesus began his public teaching, the Jewish leaders asked him, by what authority do you do these things? This is a question that our friends possibly have never heard or considered. By what authority do you do these? The authority for what we do is based on Jesus' teachings and on the inspired teachings of the apostles. Scripture warns that some would lead God's people away, away from his instruction. The apostle Peter warned that people would twist the scriptures. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. The Apostle Paul was amazed at how quickly Christians can be led into error. Galatians 1.6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And Paul warned that we needed to maintain the traditions that he had delivered to them. And in Galatians 1 and verse 8, But even if we or an angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, Let him be accursed. The apostles warned that times would come when people would change the simple doctrine of the apostles and of Jesus. Most of our neighbors likely feel that as times change, it's natural that our religious ideals must keep pace with the new world. When we study with someone and show them that what they practice is not found in Scripture, we may need to introduce the concept that man is not free to redesign what God has given to us. We live in a world of rapid technological change, and the changes in our physical world have caused us to rethink even morality. What's right? What's wrong? Or is anything really wrong? The Old Testament was written 3,500 years ago. The New Testament is now 2,000 years old. Many religious people in many religions teach that much of Scripture is no longer relevant in our modern world. This ignores the fact that Scripture comes from an eternal God, an eternal mind. How can we think that in a few thousand years we've outgrown the wisdom of one who has existed forever? Surely the eternal God laughs at how much we think we've learned in the last 2,000 years. And how arrogant is it to think that we can improve on what the Almighty God has instructed us? In Matthew 15, Jesus condemned the leaders of God's people for putting aside the teaching of God and teaching instead their own doctrines. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. In verse 9, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When Jesus came to the earth, the religious leaders were busy designing their own religious practices. And nothing has really changed since then. Throughout history, mankind has misapplied or totally ignored God's instruction. Given time, man typically, historically, departs from the pure teachings of God. When men write religious doctrine, we wind up with religions that don't allow their leaders to marry, even though Scripture is clear that the apostles could marry. We have religions that totally ignore the scriptural qualifications for elders and deacons. We have religions that teach that it's a sin to turn a light switch on or off. On a Saturday, we have religions that forbid zippers on clothing. We have religions that place homosexuals in leadership positions in their churches, even though Scripture states that these will be excluded from the kingdom of God. So, why should we look to the New Testament church for authority? Why do we hold the New Testament church as a standard? It's because the apostles actively led that church. Because Jesus had personally groomed those apostles for the mission that he gave them to direct his church. And because the apostles didn't have to rely on their own understanding, they were instructed by the Holy Spirit how to lead Christ's church. So what do I hope that we'll take from this morning's lesson? I think perhaps we skip a step when we study with our neighbors. When we study with someone outside the church, we tend to begin with authority, and that's good. We tend to look to Scripture as the source for that authority, as we should. But we can't assume that others value Scripture as we do. Many people believe there's a great deal of freedom in how we respond to God and his instruction. It's always good to begin a study by establishing common ground. And perhaps that common ground is that most will agree that there are abuses in the teachings of man's religions. And once that's agreed, we can go on to establish the uniqueness and the value of the apostles' doctrine versus the doctrines of men. We've spoken this morning about the first century church, and we've seen that the apostles were led by the the Spirit of God. In Acts 2, when Christ's church began, the people asked what they needed to do to be saved. The apostle Peter answered to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That instruction has been ignored or changed by man's wisdom down through the years. That passage continues, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's speaking of us. We are their children, the generations that followed. We are those who are far off. So if there is anyone here this morning who needs to obey the commandment of God on how to be saved, you have that opportunity. The waters of baptism are behind me, and if anyone is in need this morning, come forward as we stand and sing.